Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Doctor Strange. Doctor Strange. You think you know how the world works? What if I told you the reality you know is one of many? This doesn't make any sense. Not everything does. Not everything has to. Through the mystic arts, we harness energy and shape reality. We travel great distances in an instant. How do I get from here to there? How did you become a doctor? Study and practice. Here's the bit. There's a strength to him. But is he ready? Be careful which path you travel down, Strange. Stronger men than you have lost their way. I am death. Bring pain. You'll die protecting this world. I can't do this. There is no other way. I've spent so many years peering through time. Looking for you. What's this, my mantra? It's the Wi-Fi password. We're not savages. We are back for more Marvel Cinematic Universe coverage, and our returning guests are Neil Taylor. Hello. And Joshua Garrity. Hello there. And this is a show that you guys have been asking for since that movie came out late last year. And we wanted to do it then, but we had to wait for these guys to catch up. And we also admittedly had to also watch the Blu-ray ourselves again so that we could really wrap our heads around this one. Mm. Same with Rogue One, which is coming out very soon, and Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them as well. Where to Find Them is on this podcast. Some films we see and we can just talk about immediately like uh, we saw Lego Batman it was like right we got this it's in the bag um, others we may not be in the mood to fully cover so right now we are two yeah two days away from seeing Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 we may do it straight away we may wait but it, it really depends on how we feel and, and who's raring to go on it um, but there's a world of difference between a five or ten minute review and the kind of exhaustive depth we go into. I realized this when I was listening to Mark Kermo doing his, like, when he talks about his films that, like, you know, five to ten minutes. And it's like, oh, that's a really good review. And, like, like so you got some really good uh, movie reviewers on YouTube and stuff. But what we do, 
requires us to get into the granular levels of these films and a lot of the time we need to know what the director was thinking we need to listen to the commentary watch the extras if there are any it's very different and, I need notes and do some and research and yeah, you can't write notes in the, cinema. in the cinema understandably so um, so yeah uh, we want also we want these to be worth the wait and I think this one's going to be so Doctor Strange is another untapped Marvel character, ultimately now he has been tapped, created by Steve Ditko and Stan Lee, the same duo that brought us Spider-Man. He first appeared in Strange Tales number 110. So they got through 109 of them without having a doctor named Strange. Hmm. Um, in, that was in July of 1963, that was two months before the Avengers formed. Unlike Iron Man and the Incredible Hulk, Strange never had his own TV show, although he did have a disco-looking TV movie in 1978. Did anyone see this? Good lord. bits of it. It's freaking terrible. Okay. Uh, I'm just going to show Sharon a little, like a 31-second clip of this, if you guys want to have a look. So, uh, <laughs> Doctor Strange, 1978. YouTube this one, folks. And we'll play you this clip now. The CBS promo is a nice way of doing it. Wednesday, September 6th, reach into the unknown with Dr. Strange. Do you believe in evil? You're telling me you're a sorcerer. <laughs> Don't defy me, Stephen. I was waiting for that. John Mills is the power of good. Jessica Walter is the power of evil. And mankind's fate hangs in the balance. Yeah. Peter Hooten yeah. stars as the man in the middle, Dr. Strange. Will the forces of evil conquer the forces of good on Earth? Dr. Strange, a special two-hour presentation. Broken I think we need to see this movie. I think we do. It's got Jessica Walter in it. A young, super hot Jessica oh Walter as God. Morgan Le Fay. Oh, for Pete's sake. They really got this Doctor Strange logo wrong, though, didn't they? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it would appear that they got pretty much everything wrong in oh, this yes. thing. But, uh, Absolutely. We... And yeah. what, when, when exactly was that released? I'm curious. 1978. Yeah, what month? Uh, why? Because I'm curious. Was it the year you were born and the month you were born? That's what I want to find out. Uh, <laughs> TV movie. It will be like the Star Wars holiday special in that they probably never screened it again. Look at that poster. Oh. That, how is that not turning into a porno at any minute? It's like Flash Gordon. In, a, in the best way. Uh, uh, September, September 6th, 1978. Uh, so it's slightly older than you It's a little bit older than me. <laughs> Anyway, we're off the track again, folks. This 2016 version is Scott Derrickson directing. That's the director of Sinister and The Exorcism of Emily Rose. It's also written by John Spates, the writer of the first Prometheus script. That's the one where it was going to be facehuggers and aliens. You mean um, the one that didn't suck? Yeah. Uh, well, I, we, we will never know. But oh, Actually, no, I read the thing. It, it was still better than Prometheus because it, it felt more like an alien film, but... It, it, you know, it, it still wasn't an. Ex it was not an exceptional alien film, but he also wrote the Darkest Hour 3D, which I have it on good authority is not fantastic. And C. Robert Cargill was the co-writer of this as well. He was also the writer of the first two Sinister movies. And I'm frankly amazed that Doctor Strange 2016 is this good because on hearing that this was the creative team, I was I was checking out their um, their past work and I had some Dormammu-sized reservations. Now, full disclosure, I haven't seen any of Derrickson's earlier films, principally because they scored very low critically, but I'm fully prepared to watch them all after this, even if it's just to study his visual style, and if nothing else, to better understand why Kevin Feige figured that this is the man to bring the world Stephen Strange. Didn't also hurt that I think C. Robert Cargill, who used to work, was it Bleeding Cool or one of those? Um, yeah, yeah. 
uh, he's like a massive Doctor Strange fan. Well, they certainly went into to this like having a big old list of things that they had to make sure were in there, but it wasn't just a big old grab bag. They very deliberately left out clear. And Dormammu was sidelined to the point where he was just this big bad at the end. And they kept it focused on the important characters. Um, so, so they didn't just, like, grab everything and shove it all in willy-nilly. This was a, a, a considered decision. And it's also smaller and slightly more low-key, considering the cosmic scale. Um, mm. Considering a, a lot of other Marvel movies. I think it had to be a slightly shorter shoot as well because uh, um, they were behind time. Benedict Cumberbatch was acting as Hamlet and they held it back to wait until he was done so that he could just get off stage, get on a plane, come and do Doctor Strange. Mm, yeah. I think it, it's, it's kind of a film of contrast. It's, there's decisions that were made that seem to have been very specifically to make it not like certain other films mm -hmm. like you said it's a it's a cosmic story but they couldn't mix it up with guardians, guardians. it's um you know they, they didn't want it to necessarily have that world ending sense that a lot of the earlier marvel films mm. have had and, and sort of big mass scale destruction mm. um and it but couldn't end with time, this giant robot or alien fight absolutely and also i think there's one other element that they really seem to have gone out of their way to avoid and this didn't really hit me until i read the straczynski uh, strange beginnings beginnings and endings first it's kind time. of an ultimate strange kind of in yeah. it just it goes back to his origin story but <laughs> Doctor Strange is supposed to be sort of this, the spiritual element, if you like, of the, the Marvel Universe. Mm -hmm. And he isn't in the MCU. It, it didn't feel that way at all. Cosmic, yes, it's planetary level, but that's mm. what it felt like. Mm. Um, and, and we'll talk about this more when we get to the end, but when he goes up to confront uh, Dormammu... Dormammu, come to bargain. Not, it doesn't feel like he's gone in. It feels like he's gone... Out. Up and out. Hmm. Um, and I think there's a reason for that. I think they were trying to avoid bad Ghost Rider comparisons. Seriously? Mm-hmm. Scratching at the door! Yep, which is an actual line in Straczynski's book. Actually, I think it was scraping <laughs> at the door. No, no, no. It's scratching at the door. Really? Yep. It sure. is. Mm-hmm. Scraping at the door! Scraping at the door! It isn't. But, but but this was written before Ghost Rider Spirits of Vengeance came along. And I don't know. I honestly don't know whether Nick Cage just improvised that line. Mm. I, d I don't know whether it was written at all. It was... Uh... <laughs> Let's hear from you guys, because like we've just been yakking on for 25 minutes already. Um, and you've seen this more recently. Did you have a lot invested in Doctor Strange before you saw it, or, or what? May I go first, Josh? Yes, go. Go, Neil. I would like you to rewind... Several several years to Captain America, the Winter Soldier. Mm -hmm. I don't often mark out at things, you know, get super excited. I I remember this bit. <laughs> I know which bit you're talking about. There's a certain scene on a rooftop where they're yeah. having, a, having a conversation and the name Stephen Strange came up and I freaking marked out because mm. I wanted Doctor Strange for so long. It's like... They're going to do Doctor Strange. They're going to do Doctor Strange. I want Doctor Strange. I want Doctor Strange. I think it's... he might have even been teased earlier, but that was the one that really stands out. It's like, I 
really, really want Doctor Strange. It's Sitwell who uh, says that. Now, here's the interesting thing. As far as I can tell, doc, the, these films happen chronologically, um, mm. with with a few notable exceptions. As we just found out from watching it, Guardians 2 happens in 2014, which basically means it happens immediately after the first one. Uh, in that they spaced them apart slightly differently in the earlier ones. Um, but that means that Sitwell cited Stephen Strange as worthy of being focused on by the algorithm to Captain America on the rooftop in a moment of panic when Stephen Strange was just uh, a surgeon. A brilliant surgeon, but a surgeon... But, yeah. He put him up there with Bruce Banner. Uh, like, okay, so what does this algorithm know? The fact that he he knows that that name was on that list. What did Hydra know that Stephen Strange didn't know? <laughs> Shall I we think, read too much into this or not enough? I was so far from the Easter egg. I think the algorithm is meant to detect people that would be a threat, and he would be in some way a threat, whether it was just yeah. being a medical doctor or not. Uh, yeah, but I don't think it's gonna. It's Not gonna Hulk level. know that you're going to be a sorcerer supreme just from the, your exam results, which is. Hydra have him If Hydra had him earmarked to be a sorcerer supreme, why didn't they infiltrate Camatage? There'll be a comic to explain why they didn't. That would be great, and that also does rather imply that there is a, um, a psychometric test somewhere that has sorcerer supreme as one of the career outcomes. Christ. <laughs> 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 so yeah, um, th- yeah, that that was uh, uh, juicy. But uh, basically, it goes either one uh, one way or the other. Either it's um, uh, a sci-fi that they had him earmarked as, as the algorithm just won't get off Stephen Strange. Like it, it just keeps going. Stephen Strange, Stephen Strange, Stephen Strange. And they're like, what, what, what? He's he's a surgeon. What? And, and they they keep watching him. But then he has his car crash, and they're like, well, obviously he's harmless. He's certainly not going to become a source of supreme. But at that point, of course, Hydra were down. So. It didn't matter by yeah. that point. Yeah. The Marvel official wiki confirms this. April 2014 was the events of the Winter Soldier when Sitwell gave that rabid performance. And September 2016 through March 2017 was when Doctor Strange went to Kamataj and studied to become the Sorcerer Supreme, culminating in his confrontation with Dormammu. I've come to bargain. I, I do remember him being quite a cool concept for a hero, just that kind of tapping into that kind of Eastern mythology, um, Eastern wisdom type thing is, is always been interesting to me. Part of the reason why I love Avatar as much as I do is because mm. of that. In terms of comic books and other adaptations, there has, there's not really a standout for me. All I know is that when the casting call came out and everyone said, oh, right, Benedict Cumberbatch is playing Doctor Strange, I was like, yes, that's Absolutely. spot on. Yes, that that is a good casting choice. But at the time, I thought he was going to use his British accent. Yeah. Um, yeah. We'll probably go, we'll go into this you can uh, do it later now. on. We're 20, 28 minutes in. Go for it. Talk about the accent. I mean, so here's the thing. Benedict Cumberbatch is a great actor. He has that kind that he has that Shakespearean quality that you often only really see in older actors like mm-hmm. Ian McKellen and uh, Patrick Stewart and people like that. He's he's got it like from a really early age and he just commands the screen like uh, 
you know, I I feel nervous mentioning this movie because the, the it's it divides people. But um, in uh, Star Trek Into Darkness, like his Love performance it. is, you know, fantastic. Like he is such a commanding presence. Um, when they've got him locked up, he doesn't feel locked up at all. He feels like he is the most powerful person in the room. Who the hell are you? A remnant of the time long past. Genetically engineered to be superior so as to lead others to peace in a world at war. We were condemned as criminals, forced into exile. For centuries we slept, hoping when we awoke things would be different. But as a result of the destruction of Vulcan, your Starfleet began to aggressively search distant quadrants of space. My ship was found adrift. I alone was revived. I looked up John Harrison. Until a year ago, he didn't exist. John Harrison was a fiction created the moment I was awoken by your Admiral Marcus to help him advance his cause. A smokescreen to conceal my true identity. My name is... And in Sherlock as well, he's fantastic in that show. Would you describe him as what? Can't do that. You're leading the witness. He'll object and the judge will uphold. Mr. Holmes. Ask me how, how would I describe him? What opinion have I formed of him? He'll not teach you this. Mr. Holmes, we're fine without your help. How would you describe this man, his character? First mistake. James Moriarty isn't a man at all. He's a spider. A spider at the center of a web. A criminal web with a thousand threads, and he knows precisely how each and every single one of them dances. Uh, but the thing is, there, there, there is something powerful about that shakespearean british voice mm -hmm. that is lost a little bit when he tries to do an american accent it's not terrible it's not the best american accent in the world but it's not terrible but what i what i'm getting a sense of while watching this movie is that he's expending acting energy doing this accent, the accent yeah. and it's affecting the overall performance now it's, it's still a juggling a, act yeah yeah and it's still and i don't want to detract from this before it's still a good performance but when you're used to an a star student you know consistently giving an a star performance mm. him coming in with a b is kind of disappointing um uh, you're forgiving of the students who who always get d's and who always get c's that's fine because they always do but oh, when the guy you're doing your best pat him on the head you, you do your best but nicholas cage oh it's fine it's adorable <laughs> Um, we know you're trying, well, Nicholas. Not entirely. Hang on, like, whoa, whoa, Because Jason Statham, when he's doing an American accent, and he's like, yeah. the, he even says it in uh, in Furious Eight. This is not a spoiler. At one point, he says, "You do the math." And I'm like, "Maths? You're British. Your character's British. Say maths." Yeah. <laughs> it's in the script. I'll bloody say it. <laughs> uh, but like, what? Like, he's been in a bunch of movies where he's like, oh, "How do I do the Jason Statham?" Come on there, Sergeant. I can't even... I can't do it. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm having to, like, do three things at once I don't even know who you it. sound like right now, but it's not Jason Statham. <laughs> hang on, hang on, hang on. we got to get this guy. He's, like, travelling across worlds. <laughs> he's got Australia. <laughs> 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 
He's, he wants to be the one. Mm. <laughs> My own design. Highly modified M590 hand portable system. Fires 25 smart rounds per set. No, uh, I, I know exactly what you mean, though, Josh. It's, it's basically, it's, it's mystique having to keep herself looking like Jennifer Lawrence all the time. There's a reason yeah. I created a British character for myself to play in New Century. Because yeah. it's easier. And, and it's probably the reason that... Um, uh, Mortimer, Mortimer was a lot was, easier was for you than Abigail. Yeah. Play, yeah. Speaking of which, there is a character in New Century whose performance I based on Cumberbatch's manner of speaking. In this scene, he's talking to the man I ironically have always wanted Chiwetel Ejiofor to play. Now, this episode was recorded many, many months before Doctor Strange was released. I want to kill you. It seems like the best course of action. But there are still some other roads we could go down. So the Wendigos in the city today were all you're doing. You're infected. I hold an influence of the species within my body. Today was intended as a demonstration to help people like you understand what I am capable of. Hundreds of people are dead or now carrying the Wendigo infection. You couldn't simply show up and ask for a meeting? I wanted to be sure I would have your full attention and that you would understand the gravity of what I'm about to propose. Besides which, I had no idea your people would be gathered together in such a perfect storm of resentment, fear and hate. Well, that just makes my point so much more succinct. The audiobook of Arlington is available on Bandcamp, priced at $12. Um, but I think part of the reason that they, they did insist on him doing the American accent may well be because otherwise he's too close to Loki. That is true. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And I think also... Well, uh, like, isn't Star-Lord a bit too close to Tony Stark? You know, take the hit. Yeah. No, because um, uh, Americans don't see Americans being a bit like Americans. No, 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 that's not what I mean. Chris Pratt does not look very similar to Robert Downey Jr. Benedict Cumberbatch bears a passing Mm. resemblance to Tom Hiddleston. They've both spent a lot of time with. They're both very British. They've both spent a lot of time with Tilda Swinton. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, by the way, folks, if you haven't yet seen it, and most of you haven't. Um, especially since uh, the great John Hurt passed away this year. Um, Only Lovers Left Alive, a uh, a really kind of thought-provoking vampire drama about some vampires who are now so old. Some vampires flat-sharing in, yeah, vam- it's <laughs> in vampires. Detroit somewhere. They, they, they're not so much flat-sharing, <laughs> but like vampires dealing with the, the, the whole eternal life thing, but in a much more understated, less super-dramatic way than, say, the Vampire Chronicles. Yes. Um, and it's, it's Tom Hiddleston and Tilda Swinton and John Hurt's in there, and it's his, one of his final performances, and he's wonderful in it. Continue, Josh. Basically, I finished my point. But the the, the thing is, I think there's a version of this film where uh, he he was allowed to keep his British accent and he would have been 
immediate like this wouldn't have been so at the moment i with doctor strange i'm kind of like this is a good start and i'm looking forward to what they do next to the character and hopefully benedict cumberbatch gets a bit more comfortable with the accent and a bit more comfortable with the character and he brings his you know a game with the next film Mm. um i just i wish they could have started like Mm. at that point straight away just like right away like benedict cumberbatch doctor strange is immediately in the you know in the running of the best you know marvel characters out there and i can see a version of that if he had his british accent but then again i i do see sharon's point because tom hiddleston and um benedict cumberbatch are very like they come from similar schools of performance they have very similar tics and very similar mannerisms um uh, Tom Hilson doesn't quite have the baritone uh, voice that uh, Benedict has, but I, I do get your point with that. And also, yes, I think there is points where the British accent would uh, make uh, Doctor Strange seem like a villain, especially the first half of the film, mm. because he is such a colossal asshole yes yes he is just as long as they don't do what they did with flipping ben barnes in the chronicles of narnia where he does an entire film with a spanish accent and then in between films one and two decides he can't be bothered hello lucy and she's like oh you've lost your accent yeah i'm not prince caspian prince caspian went to an extremely posh boarding school we've done this we've said this before but yeah it's the sort of decision you can't really reverse And I think it would have given him a plus 10 to charisma and gravity had he been able to use his uh, regular accent, which would have given him that much more impact. As it is, the fact that he's Benedict Cumberbatch gave him huge props from the get-go, but it it annoyed me as well. Yeah. Although, again, I think possibly the fact that he's kind of being positioned as the the Iron Man replacement, Mm. um, they, they would have got accused of importing Sherlock's. (laughs) <laughs> you can, okay, they got accused of all kinds of shit anyway. Mm, take true. Some of these things are worth getting accused of stuff. Oh. You take it on the chin. Uh, the other thing that bothered me about this film, and this is something they can change moving forwards, but unfortunately it affects the film every time I see it, it's the lighting. I was going to give you guys a guessing game, but there are like, there are some weaknesses in this film, and the, the lighting is a big problem for me. I have bitterly complained time and time again about um, a Len Wiesman effect on uh, uh, filmmaking, where every like it's like no one's turned the lights on, and we're using the light that's coming through from a grey, miserable morning through a window two rooms away, and yeah. th- that affects Strange a lot especially at the beginning. Once the magic starts coming out and there's all these bright, shining lights, they don't give off a massive amount of natural light themselves. Like, they're not lighting the scene, but they are very much more visible and dramatic as a result of the dower lighting around them. But unfortunately, it does mean that when they're not being used, it looks like seven. You can't see what's going on. And that is a horrible, dour, miserable aesthetic, which makes watching this film a chore for me. It's ugly to look at. And it is my least favourite visually of all the Marvel films. Incredible Hulk was better, and that had some of this going on. I've I've been watching a, a lot of videos recently, having acquired a 4K TV, and we haven't really talked about this, but basically we wanted to start really getting into the granular visual like nature of film and be able to really appreciate it uh, as much as we possibly could. And we were able to do this thanks to you guys. When I got put out of action last year for two months because of my tendonitis, 
the Patreon funds that would normally get put into the production of New Century bought us a replacement TV because our old one was starting to flicker. We figured it would give us a renewed visual appreciation of the films we talk about if we made the upgrade to 4K. And we found that Marvel gets all of their films uh, colour graded in the same way and it's not a fantastic way of doing it. It's so that they all look the same and it's a nice, quick, easy, factory line, bash it out, get it done way of doing things. But it is a way of eliminating true black. It's, they're, not, they're not doing it on purpose, but blacks are never going to be black. They're going to be charcoal. Colors are not going to pop in exactly the same way. It is amazing that Guardians looks as amazing as it does, and uh, Avengers as well. Uh, but some of the other ones just look a little bit washed out. And uh, Civil War in particular, when you look at it up again, like, it's supposed to be kind of like that the colors going out of the world because the heroism is going out of the world. But it also makes it a more plain film to look at. Mm. And there, even Zack there, Snyder's films have deep blacks and bright, like, bright reds at times. And then he goes back to his disgusting toilet aesthetic. And it's like, well, this is horrible to look at. Yes, there. There is actually uh, a video on YouTube that kind of explains what's exactly what's going on with the uh, Marvel mil- yeah, movies. I may have so- seen that, actually. It's called Why Do Marvel's Movies Look Kind of Ugly? It's a video essay by Patrick H. Williams. I would dispute ugly, but it's a fascinating video to watch. Yeah, yeah. but um, I, I think they've already fixed this because uh, part of the problem is some of the cameras they've been using for the Marvel movies for a long time. Um, they For Guardians of the Galaxy 2, they have complete, they've got completely new equipment. Oh, uh, I heard that, yeah. And um, that's part of the reason why when you watch all the Guardians uh, of the Galaxy 2 trailers, they look so colourful and yeah. the lighting looks so good. It's just because they got better equipment this time and around. That would suggest Ragnarok also has the same kind of upgrade? Yeah, yeah. That we might be coming out of this era then. There was, at the very beginning of the Marvel era, the first three Marvel movies were shot on film. That was uh, Iron Man, Iron Man 2 and Thor. No idea on Incredible Hulk. Then Captain America, the first Avenger, was shot on a Genesis digital camera. Then they used the Aria Alexa on Avengers 1 and 2, Captain America 2 and 3, Iron Man 3, Thor the Dark World, Guardians 1, Ant-Man, and finally, Doctor Strange. It's not a thing that ruins the films, but there are times when I'm sort of going up and down on, on the, uh, the, the brightness and um, contrast levels to try to get it looking a bit more sharp. Mm. Usually it won't really stand out until you have two films put side by side. And you're like, oh my God, this just like the, the difference between this color scale like for example fury road is really beautifully balanced for color it's amazing to look at and then then you look at say um thor the dark world and it's not (laughs) (laughs) which remains for me at the bottom of the list you do know his cloak's supposed to be red right yeah dead last for everything except for loki who was great in it but um Loki turns up, hi, I'm here to steal the film. And yeah, I it's, just, it's Loki 3, in case you were wondering. <laughs> There's, that's one of the main reasons that Disney haven't been putting out the Marvel films in 4K discs. You may have noticed that. Because uh, everyone would go, oh, that it's, looks even worse. It doesn't, it doesn't lend itself to 4K. Mm. Now, the big problem with 4K, and I'm gonna, this is like tangenting off from Doctor Strange, definitely, is the soap opera effect. And I implore anyone who is out there who can maybe help me with ours. It is abominable. 
I've managed to eliminate it on most discs by changing the settings and reducing intelligent frame creation. This is all jargon, but I can pretty much get it fine on Blu-rays. But streaming ignores my changes. So if I'm watching something on YouTube and it's not on the old Xbox 360, if it's on the 4K accessible Xbox One or directly off the app on the TV, it just goes, I know you've changed the settings, but still, I want it on the soap opera effect. Fuck you. The soap opera effect? Oh. Okay, have either of you guys familiar with this? Is no. this similar to the thing with The Hobbit where they shot it in a faster frame rate than it made? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Most films are shot at 24 frames per second. High frame rate stuff crams in extra frames, and that works really well in sport because it lets you see the ball. The problem is when you apply that to movies, what they end up doing is a sort of a simulated version of that, whereby they kind of freeze frame for a few nanoseconds. By They fill in the holes by using stills, if that makes sense. If you can imagine every yeah. second is they're going, right, there's that shot, that shot, the other, this, 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 and this. There's basically, all these you see holes. every shot twice. So basically, they kind of smear it. Now, it is really noticeable when the camera pans across because there's this horrible, like, robotic, like, it doesn't have that beautiful fluidity of film anymore. It's got this, like, it's, sometimes it feels like you're in a cab watching the proceedings through a smudgy window and the, it's actually happening right in front of you, which is really weird. Like, the first time we, we got the TV, we stuck on Avengers and it had this mode on automatically mm. and it was inside the Quinja and I went, oh God, I'm in a Quinja. It's horrible. Only it doesn't. It's not like you're in a quincher. It's like you're in a set that looks like a quincher. Yeah. That's the problem. Everything looks too damn real. It's too. Well, you'd imagine. Oh, it's too real. So it's like you're actually there. No, because everybody moves in this weird robotic fashion, and the camera is horrible. So if if any folks out there can help me to tune my TV set to eliminate this from happening, I've pretty much managed to get it to do that. But to do that, I've had to. Put it into like 1080p mode. So effectively, I'm not even using my 4K We're breaking TV. Breaking our own TV. Alex, I think that is the way you fix it. Is you oh. don't have 4K. I don't think. You, I, I I I don't have my highest def. My highest definition I have is a 2K monitor, which mm. I still watch films on in 1080, and they're they're fine. And also back to the color stuff. I've never noticed that. Which would be if you've ruined these films for me, I'm beating you to death with a weapon. I'm so pitch. sorry. <laughs> it's still not bad. It's just yeah. a bit smoky and grey when it could be dark black the only film that i re- that you've mentioned where the the color is definitely an issue is definitely thor the dark world but mm. that film has lots of issues so you you notice it more when when you compare it to like uh, mad max fury fury road is a great example it's just like there's such a mastery of lighting and color in that film and then you go from that to uh, even civil war which i you know i think looks actually really good mm. but like civil war kind of suffers from that kind of grayscale uh, effect and it's not terrible i it won't ruin the films for you neil it, and there are other things to appreciate just like you know mm. civil war has a mastery of just the movement of the camera there's a kinetic energy to mm. the way captain america is filmed in that in in that movie um but just like yeah, when you, when you when you see a film that knows how to use color, it becomes really noticeable. Yeah, <clears throat> it's it's kind of just a, the double-edged sword of really boning up on this kind of technical um, side side of the actual filmmaking. Mm. And um, once you know, you cannot unknow. You, yeah, Doctor Strange as it is is actually slightly below 
I know it can't be below Dark World because it has moments that are really genuinely noteworthy as visually amazing, which offset the the miserable normal world in a, in a pronounced fashion. There is that issue. I kind of have to just bite my tongue and suck it up when I'm uh, when, when I'm watching it now in future. But uh, but that's my that's one of my only real issues with the film, and it's it's not crippling. It also feels like the fact that they got Scott Derrickson, who has worked in horror over and over again, he's brought this horror aesthetic to the whole thing. So there's, there's quite a few jump scares in there, which he mentioned that uh, um, the uh, test audiences, because when he did his commentary they hadn't yet released it, so he was very guarded about, you know, people might or might not like this, but the test audiences weren't really used to jump scares happening uh, because they're used to sort of family films. They're not, they're not they're used to sitting down and watching a film where a ghost is constantly appearing suddenly and going, Booga! That might explain one of the things that that would be one of my highest points to praise on this movie. Actually, um, the the visual sequences for me, particularly the the first out of body sequence when uh, Stephen arrives at Camatage. I'm I'm a word person. I've said this many times before. The script is always going to be the most important thing for me. And although uh, a film with really impressive visuals, especially if it blends well with the script, is obviously going to be, um, it's going to blow me away. What really got me about the, the visual sequences here is how visceral they feel. Yeah. It It, it wasn't just colourful and impressive looking, it felt like something. And if he's familiar, if uh, Derrickson's familiar with using what he can put on a screen to make people feel something, in the vast majority of cases with, with horror, it's, it's fear um, or, you know, some kind of shock, then that might explain how those they came across so strongly to me. It's, and usually it, I criticize that, but in this particular case, it really worked. It's it's the, you know, the, the scene where um, the Ancient One first kind of sends uh, Doctor Strange into all the, you know, the, into the multiverse and how intense that that experience is it yeah. feels like he's being torn apart mm. emotionally and psychologically and the way they convey that visually to the audience like his limbs light up in different colors like it's so effective at, at, at conveying how alien and intense this would be for a normal human to experience and you know it, it's a great contrast with um, um, Ant-Man actually when he goes because the sub you know the subatomic universe that's conveyed in ant-man feels almost serene mm. and peaceful uh whereas here it feels like a nightmare mm. um in the best possible way though yeah it what it reminded me of actually is um the uh, the wormhole sequence in contact yes yeah yeah, yeah. Mm. it's it's got that sense of of kind of Visual poetry, but terrifying visual poetry. Yeah. So, I've said lighting. Costumes. I can definitely talk about costumes, and I, I, this is going to be entirely in the positive. I can't actually imagine a Doctor Strange outfit looking better or more appropriate without them trying to make it look too realistic. And this isn't a comic book. We're scared of comic books. We're ashamed that we come from a comic book. It's got 
this kind of, I'm holding up the uh, the action figure right now from uh, Marvel Select. It's got this sort of beautiful drapery to it, and uh, all the other costumes seem connected with this, in uh, as in that they they all seem to fit into their own world, um, as in like uh, this is just how sorcerers dress. The thing I and, love about the costuming here, especially about Stranger's costume, is it feels complete from the off. It feels fine. It looks wonderful and rich and everything. Yeah, yeah. And then the cape comes in and it's like, mm-hmm. oh, it's, it almost comes in. It's not like, and like I said, it feels complete beforehand, but then it just, it's just right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whoever they've hired recently uh, in their costume department is uh, knocking it out of the park. Because Black Panther, as well, we were saying on the Civil War podcast, his costume is fantastic. Um, and I'm, I'm, yeah, I think that Marvel have really got into the swing of things with, with in the costume department. They haven't done a bad one at all recently. Mm. There's um, a, a strong sense of uh, practicality about Marvel costumes as well, and I don't mean that necessarily in the in the sense that they're all practical and people can move in them. Although there is that, but they all feel right for the role that they're given. And, and one of the things that I get from Strange's costume was the the idea that if if right, <laughs> okay, this is going to sound a bit weird, but if you're doing magic stuff. You need to be grounded physically. You need something that is going to give you weight and feel like it's going to hold you down so that you don't drift off into the mysteries of space. So that he's got all these straps and this material that feels very, uh, very weighty. And there's a there's a physicality to it that I really, really love. And I really get the impression recently, every time I see a Marvel film and look at the costumes in it, that there's a, a group of costume designers and, and um, manufacturers that are basically stood in front of Fox's team going, see, nah, giving them the finger. This is how you do it. Come on, don't have to put everybody in black leather. OK, uh, Alexandra Byrne is the... Uh... Uh, costume designer for uh, Doctor Strange but she was also the costume designer on Age of Ultron Guardians of the Galaxy Avengers Assemble, Thor Elizabeth and Elizabeth the Golden Age and got, uh, 300 Rise of an Empire uh, and the Phantom of the Opera and Finding Neverland and oh the 1996 Hamlet in what we're trying to say ass. she's good yeah <laughs> oh yes she's a total pro and she's currently doing the costumes for Mortal Kombat <laughs> well, look at, look at this. Just look. Sorry, I'm just a sidebar here. The go back one. The, IMDb... the costumes for the Buddha of Suburbia. If you're a fan of uh, that guy who played that. <laughs> oh God, I thought about that in years. <laughs> the IMDb page for the upcoming Mortal Kombat film. Mm-hmm. Right, it says. Plot unknown. It's a Mortal Kombat movie. I can tell you the goddamn plot now. Okay, Shang Tsung's up to no good, and he's played this time by James Hong. And um, (laughs) that's that's bloody Lopan. Yep, and everyone is looking pretty good. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But so, so yeah, they've got this. the fact that she's actually worked on all of these gives a consistency throughout, which actually kind of harkens back to Lord of the, Lord of the Rings. I mean, Lord of the Rings is the only uh, competing film series for me and Sharon. I think maybe Harry Potter as well. Mm, yeah, possibly the, like, the, the earlier Narnia films as well. Uh, just in terms of, like, series where the, the whole film, the series comes together with congruity, mm-hmm. which the Narnia films do not. There's yeah. a disconnect there between films one and two and definitely between two and three. But um, the, uh, the, the, the 
the fact that they're, they're getting the same costume as in gives a sense of it may not necessarily be realistic, but it's realistic for this universe because mm. it's all the same. And, and kind of going back to a point that Sharon um, was making, um, there's a real sense that they focus in on um, a key element of the character with all the costumes. So with Captain America's redesign, um, something I really love about his his look in Avengers 2 and Civil War is that they really emphasize how bulky and strong he is in a way that um, the event, the, you know, the original Avengers costume doesn't like yeah. you look at his upper body and the way the, the costume is sculpt sculpted. It, it's designed to emphasize like his, his muscles on his, on his arms and everything. So he feels like a brick wall. And then you have, um, Doctor Strange and there's like this it's as you say Sharon it's sturdy but it's kind of uh, fluid like water like mm. it just blends together in a way and it kind of feels like that kind of Asian you know that Asian mythology that kind of flow like water kind of have the chi channeling through you and all that stuff I, I really love that kind of emphasis with all of the characters Black Panther as well like that feeling of like his culture being emblazoned on his mm. on his outfit but also kind of those little bits of like silver color kind of emphasizing this is body armor that's yeah. covering his entire body and he's completely invulnerable. I, I love those little touches that kind of emphasize character and also their power set. Apparently the new Black Panther costume for the Ryan Coogler film is going to be slimmed down. Are we talking about a black skeleton here? It's about as slim as it can get right now. <laughs> if it gets any slimmer, they're going to have to put a black bar over him. <laughs> <laughs> The, uh, the, we, we mentioned the cape before. I feel like the cape should have been introduced a little bit earlier. Uh, not that he got it earlier, but just so that we uh, introduced to the cape as a sort of a character and just sort of go, this thing's alive. Just, mm. you know, in, the, in like when, when he first goes to Kamataj, maybe. It's nice to see carpet from a London game work these days. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like everyone commented on the fact that it was very much like the magic carpet from Aladdin. It's uh, and people were in fact saying that there should be an Avengers with the magic carpet and the cape. They've always had difficulty justifying capes in um, superhero comics. No capes. <laughs> Thank you. You know, Thor had a, a cape because it's part of his culture, and then Vision got his cape because he was inspired by Thor. And uh, Strange will gladly wear that cape because it serves a very practical use. So at the moment, all three capes are very much justified. And, Just the cape uh, of levitation, so you can't yeah, eat it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also, a great idea making uh, the Eye of Agamotto an infinity gem as well, because that folds strange irreparably, well, uh, uh, irrevocably, in with the Infinity War. He has a stake in it. No pun intended. Folds strange? Irrevocably. Irrevocably? Yes, you use the Eye of Agamotto to revoke things. Very nice. So he would be able to revoke... The fact that he's been folded in, but he hasn't got the eye. So uh, uh, it's, it's notable that he uh, leaves the eye behind, because otherwise um, he, he would be killed by Thanos in the uh, recovery of it uh, in uh, Avengers Infinity. One, also, again, isn't this the first one where they actually do refer to them as Infinity Stones, or it as an Infinity Stone? Because that's what Wong says. I well, think um, doesn't it's the been collector said before somebody says something about it's not a good idea to have two infinity gems in the same place. Yeah, the collector said that um, at the end of Thor: The Dark World, our punching bag. Mm. 
However, that does call to mind another little issue I had with the movie. I'm not going to just like constantly niggle and nitpick at it, but the first thing you notice about the movie is the lighting because it's it's sort of dark and and, and gloomy looking, and you go into a library, and then there's the librarian is like, huh? And then he gets grabbed and very painfully held by these um, zealots with sort of glowing chains. And then Caecilius turns up and goes, nah, I will just put this chamber pot down here and then off with your head. And then head goes clanging there. It's like, what's that really necessary? The first thing you do is a really painful, grisly murder. It, obviously, like from their perspective, it's like, we've got to show that these guys mean business. But there are other ways... It's just so grisly, grim, and, and horrible a way to start a movie that it's 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 by no means my favorite beginning to a Marvel thing. Although, immediately after that, you get a nice little bit of Mirror World stuff uh, with um, uh, the Ancient One. So dispatching people even grislier. Is that even that's not really a word, but she grislier. <laughs> she does dispatch people in a variety of. Well, they're not shown to be, but would be inevitably rather messy ways. Mm. Crushed by... The only way I can think of describing it is gears and buildings and... Yeah, I like the fact that she seems quite frightening, especially at this point. When you don't see her talking and she's just like a, this you know, obvious martial arts badass. Um, but the, it, this obviously hints at the fact that she is actually dabbling in some dark forces and uh, that she's somebody to be respected and feared. Mm. So that there's a little bit of... Um, also, Tilda Swinton has a very kind of disarming kind of... Um, I might go either way. I, I could be your greatest friend or I might bite your head off. I don't know. I haven't decided yet um, about her. She does, rather. And th this whole section as well, um, there's a, a... What's the word I'm looking for here? A, a slightly Lovecraftian feel to it all mm. because mm. you've got these massive worlds that are doing things they're not meant to do and buildings that are folding in on themselves and quite frankly some kind of squid creature could appear at any moment mm. and the whole thing feels like a giant puzzle box and it made me feel um very much like the the uh, ios games mm. the room mm. um one two and three which has a very it's a it's a puzzle box based game but it has that lovecraftian tone to it mm. um and it kind of put me back there briefly Okay, you said originally, Sharon, that you really liked Caecilius and is a really complex villain. I think I agreed with you at the time, but watching him twice more, I have my reservations. Do you want to talk about Caecilius? And, and you guys as well, feel free to jump in. I think um, uh, less so on rewatching. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, at one point, I was racking my brains thinking, really? Did I say that about him? I, you I totally think, did. Yeah, no, 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 I did. I, I, I heard it with my ears. Yes, I know. Um, I, I came out of this movie feeling stoned. I will say that right now. A just um, <laughs> reaction, my liege. <laughs> so I, I may not have been thinking entirely straight. Um, but no, I, I do believe that there's... It's really difficult to define, but it's, it's to do with his motivations and it's to do with his... Um, his reasons for behaving the way he does... Which is just a fancier way of saying motivations. I'm not entirely, <laughs> I'm not entirely certain how I want to phrase this. Um, but the what does he want? To, you tell us right, what he wants. He's not. He's not looking for revenge. It's not. He's not seeking. Though he is embittered about the fact that he is, uh, yeah. his master wouldn't share her darkest exactly, secrets. Exactly. But but that's kind of what I mean. There there are several threads that feed into who Caecilius is and why he behaves the way he does. And in fact, okay, I'm going to draw a parallel here um, to some extent. 
up on the commentary Derrickson mentions that uh, who is an all white guy if you listen to him he has principles yeah, he's he not is, the most fascinating some... guy to listen to he hasn't got this incredibly exciting voice no, but, but he he's a decent really guy from the sounds in, in the commentary and it was quite um, quite a good thing to, to review but he, he talks about the idea that the ancient one basically has three sons oh, yeah, yeah. she has Mordo who is the good son mm-hmm. she has Caecilius who is the bad son and Strange who is the new son and guess what that made me think of? The the kind of mythology and folklore that contains three sons? Not quite. With the youngest always being the lucky one? Kung Fu Panda. Ah, <laughs> Tiger. Yeah. Oh, you were tai searching Lung for... Yep. And Poe. Very good. Tiger is the good one. Tai yep. Lung is the bad one. The yep. errant one. And Poe is the new... There's quite a bit of Kung Fu Panda in there. Yep. Okay. I would say, in defence, we actually are seeing the. It is, Doctor Strange is not only the origin story of the hero, but it's also the origin story of a complex villain. Mm. Mordo. Yeah. yeah. Mordo, yeah. to me, is the character that steals the show. And it's like, you, you start off with him being the good guy and believing in everything to find out everything he believed in and thought was true was a lie. And it mm. shatters him. But he is a, he is a reflection of Caecilius as well. So in Mordo, you see how Caes, or, or one of the ways in which Caecilius got to where he is, which is disappointment. Mm, yeah. And in um, in Caecilius, you see where Mordo is potentially going to go. And those two kind of form this little circle that intensifies the scariness of both of them, if you like. Yeah, I think for me. Um Caecilius is just a victim of not having enough screen time as a character and not and not enough of that screen time that he's given is dedicated to kind of fleshing out his motivations you get that one scene where he's kind of in that weird wizard bondage gear and um that's his best uh, yeah he actually, and, uh, Mads Mikkelsen cries during that scene. It's it's quite subtle, but it's there. It could just be that the makeup is irritating his eyes, but he's really putting a lot into it. Yeah. All that spiky straight check, it's incredibly painful. Yeah, that would hurt me too. <laughs> Carry on, Josh, you, sorry. You have that one scene that kind of uh, gives you a glimpse into his psyche, but apart from that, he is kind of stabby McStabbardson, yeah. and uh, he's carried a lot by Mads Mikkelsen just kind of being born to play... But, you know, villains like he is just an actor who came out of the womb, like giving an evil stare that sends a chill down your spine. So <laughs> part, of it, part of it is that like Mads just is born to play this kind of character. Um, Scott but- Derrickson, I believe, said uh, Mads Mikkelsen, there's no other actor like him alive. And I went, Udo Kier. That took me one second. <laughs> Like, basically, possibly a vampire, Udo Kier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, if if it means, if you know, if Caecilius is the victim of, of the script here, and if it means that we get a more interesting villain uh, next time, that I'm okay with that, because you need to dedicate a lot of time just establishing Strange and, and getting to know him, and in the second film we can have that, you know, compelling like, they're, they're setting up like um, Mordo to essentially be a mon from uh, yep. Legend of Korra, um, he's gonna go around um, uh, removing people's bending mm. um, so that's, that's we've already seen what that villain looks like like it's a good, you know, a good core concept for an antagonist. So it's especially um, interesting an antagonist who's not threatening to kill 
anyone in particular yeah. just yeah. To, to take the magic and uh that that is actually quite a, a, a terrifying prospect for somebody who has learned uh, um like that, that fellow at the end to depend on that and it's part of the way he lives and moves now and uh th- you know there are going to be other people out there for whom magic is their way of life and, and to have that taken away is as good as death but it's much less clean and straightforward than just killing someone that's why all of this speculation about uh, 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 Avengers Infinity, like, who's going to die? It's like, guys, you're thinking so small scale on this thing. These Infinity Gems can do anything, pretty much. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I have a theory. There, there, is, there are far worse things and far more complex and interesting scenarios to explore than just, we killed Iron Man. Mm. And yeah. that actually kind of uh, matches one of the things Straczynski puts in beginnings and endings Mm. uh, which is basically that it's not that we're going to kill your family but we're going to make it so they were never your family in the first place Mm. that's uh, um, I I wonder how people would have taken it if that had been part of the movie basically at the end of this origin story he goes back to his home and finds a completely different couple living there kind of like Flight of the Navigator or uh, Back to the Future 2 and then uh, does some detective work finds out where his sister's living and finds she got in an accident that he wasn't there to prevent as a child and uh, life has basically gone on without him and he hasn't made any impact on the world he has effectively stepped sideways into a new reality and that's the price he has to pay. It's a really sobering ending. And um, I think maybe that might have made people too uncomfortable uh, if, if it had been in the, the film. Just like it would have left, they would have left not only feeling stoned and tripped out, but really introspective, which is maybe <laughs> like not they what were Marvel bad are trying down. to do. You don't want that. Yeah. <laughs> Another thing this book, uh, Straczynski's Strange Beginnings, put across, which was a complete reversal in the movie was that Baron Mordo was supple. He bent, and Stephen Strange was straight. And the Ancient One in this story said that they needed a straight line, somebody unyielding to be the Sorcerer Supreme, and that Baron Mordo would bend. Whereas in this, Strange needs Mordo's strength, and Mordo needs Strange's flexibility. The opposite. And Effectively, I've... in this, Caecilius is Darth Maul... Yeah. With a bit of a monologue, who expla- explains a bit more about his... Uh, he, he's the foot soldier. Uh, it's Dormammu, who's the, the big schemer, the big bad. And we only get to see him a little bit. And their failure here is is basically making Dormammu complex. Because uh, I, I love that sequence. But there's no point where Dormammu doesn't go, so I could just keep killing you over and over again, and, and then this is just going to keep happening. Okay, well... I am eternal, so... And then he puts his head on his hand and stares at Strange. What you got? And basically they just sit and stare at each other for eons. And eventually Dormammu gets bored. That would actually have been quite interesting if one of Dormammu's ways of killing him is right, I'm going to sit here until you die You just die of thirst. And then he comes back, Dormammu, I'm here to bargain. He's like, oh, this again. But um, the fact that Dormammu only knows how to destroy... And give up. 
that makes him a very uncomplex villain. He's yeah. only just above that cloud we saw in uh, of Galactus in uh, uh, Fantastic Four: Rise of the Silver Surfer, and the same cloud we saw in Green Lantern. A lot. Who doesn't people, know how gravity works? A lot of people say that Marvel struggles with villains. I don't mm. think that's entirely str- entirely true. I think they struggle with cosmic level supervillains. Mm. I think mm. the oh, human. I think villains, Thanos is going to uh, to correct that. Let's hope so. As but will the, Hela. The human villain tend to whip the pants off their uh, terrifying aliens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Neil, this applies to you. Uh, Fast and Furious. I um, was reckoning on how good in the series of villains Carlos Theron is in 8. And I was going back through the series and I realised something very significant about the Fast and Furious series. They have a similar villain problem in that most of their actual villains are crappy. Yeah. They're, they're they're pretty grim and they're evil and like they they don't care about family like Dom does and they're, like, at best they're the opposite of that and um, Carly Theron's character actually tries to challenge him on that um, and she's one of the best ones but that's not saying much she's up against uh, Johnny Tran in the first one Cole Hauser in the second one Takashi in the third one Braga in the fourth one Reyes in the fifth one Owen Shaw in the sixth one these are not memorable villains. They're just obstacles. But the Fast and Furious films do what the Marvel films do, but no one ever chastises Fast and Furious films for not having fantastic villains. What they do is they deliver to you a villain like Johnny Tran at the beginning in uh, the first Fast and Furious and an antagonist. So uh, Brian is up against Dominic. Dominic is the antagonist. In the second one, Roman is the antagonist. In the third one... Oh, uh, no, wait. Actually, technically, in the third one, Sean is the antagonist. He's the furious one messing everything up. And he's the one who basically has to be challenged on that one. In the fourth one, Dominic is again the antagonist. And eventually he relents and uh, allows himself to be captured and tries to learn his lesson. They lock him away and throw away the key. In the fifth one, the antagonist is Hobbs. In the sixth one, the antagonist is Letty. In the seventh one, the antagonist is... Uh, actually, the seventh one's probably the, the the best, and the antagonist is and villain are both Jason Statham. He's basically the one exacerbating the situation, yeah. and also, you know, he's the one who's got it in for them. So that's probably the one with the most straightforward, like you know, clash between um, antagonist and protagonist. But that's possibly as a result of the fact that they had to sideline Brian. Mm. I was just going to say, I think it's because people don't have the expectations on the Fast and the Furious that they do with the Marvel films. Yeah. yeah. Hence why Fast and Furious has become became the stealth blockbuster. No one was expecting all of a sudden, hey, we're here. One of, one of the things that I, I really, really like uh, about this film, and I, something I was af- afraid of um, going into it, is how they do they, they do a great job of kind of creating an internal logic for how the mm. magic operates. Um, yeah. there's, a, there's a real danger uh, with a character like Doctor Strange that he just becomes a character who can do anything. anything yeah. But by having like a few things that they they establish right from so the mirror world for example mm-hmm. having this as a like a mechanism of um you know the 
if you want to be able to deform things and if you're not Kaecilius with his extra dark power, you take people to the mirror world and then you gain access to all this kind of like a reality warping abilities. Fair enough. Mm. That's cool. And it neatly avoids the uh, collateral damage problem yeah. that happens in so many other um, superhero action movies. No civilians are getting killed mm. when the mirror world action is happening. So you get to have all that satisfying uh you know um, chaos chaos but without yeah. the consequence of it which is great um but also like the um I, I forget what the rings are actually called sling rings sling rings yes um the sling ring that's a great uh, a great mechanism for teleportation as well not having mm. it be as easy as uh dr strange Oof. clicks his fingers and he's off somewhere else having it be a technique he needs to practice and you have to focus and concentrate so there's that you know element of tension of oh is he going to draw the time yeah Yeah. is he going to (laughs) draw the circle quick enough before he can escape oh he's bleeding out is he going to do it um and that's like trying to activate your hearthstone in the middle of the battle yeah indeed (laughs) um and and all of that stuff was really well played and at no point did it feel like Doctor Strange was immortal? Like, mm. there is a great sense of fragility to everything, and that he barely manages to escape, um, you know, Kaecilius's, uh, uh smoky dagger and uh, all these lasers and, and, and energy whips and all of that stuff. They managed to create a sense of impact and power without everyone feeling like they're the Incredible Hulk. Yeah. By the way, you know how you said they did a great job of making Strange not feel like basically a cosmic god? Mm-hmm. That was a major problem they ran into with Doctor Strange in the comics, where they had to yeah, had to, to too much. seriously cut him back down. Yeah, It's a problem with any uh, character who is uh, blessed with too much in, in terms of power. They start to lose... Uh, uh, touch with reality and like you can't relate to someone who's that um cosmically powerful it would talk like it's dr manhattan syndrome is probably the best way of putting it like if you it's difficult to write someone like that mm. because how do they think and feel however i think part of of how they what can endanger that, them yeah but part of how they've overcome that with with it is how well you write the character because ultimately somebody like that they're their greatest demons are going to be internal ones. Mm -hmm. And if you write the character well enough so that it comes across that, yes, they have all this power, yes, they have all this potential, but every self-doubt, every um, mistake that they've ever made is going to be right there to trip them up and make them fail, that's how you get a human out of somebody who has immense power. Well, I mean, the the Hulk is the the best example of that because... The Hulk is all-powerful in a lot of ways, but he sacrifices a piece of his sentience in order to become that powerful. And the enormous guilt of being that powerful and not having the degree of control that Captain America has, even though Captain America is considerably less powerful, um, Bruce Banner absolutely envies you know, Steve Rogers' absolute discipline and um, control over his abilities, the Hulk is just a wildfire you let loose on the enemy and hope no casualties get hurt along the way. That's actually, uh, I saw the um, a, a really good ranking of superheroes uh, in terms of um, their abilities. And, and Steve, for just being above human um, 
athletic abilities. It ranks very highly because he knows what he can do and can do it extremely well. Uh, up against, say, Iron Man, Tony is lazy. Tony never really learned to fight properly with his, his armor. He leans far too much on technology. He doesn't have that super dedication uh, that Steve does, which puts him in a lower skill set. You got pecs, I got techs. Yeah. Dan Harmon was brought in to touch up this uh, script, which is obviously written by two guys accustomed to writing horror movie stuff. So basically, I'm going to go ahead and bet that the ten times there's a straightforward belly laugh in this film, or, or at least a <laughs> type uh, laugh, were all written by Harmon. Like, they, they just sort of added jokes. That uh, the vending machine bit, talking to Wong about various different names, and then starts pinching library books through portals. Oh, I love that bit. Lovely moments like that. Um, the Wi-Fi password. The Wi-Fi password. But these are all just like Harmon-related uh, uh, gags. And ultimately, he needs to be brought in to jazz up other movies. But that did, however, um, outline for me how pretty dramatic most of the rest of the uh, the, the film is. And while the um, humor isn't out of place, it is uh, mostly it's a drama film. Uh, but You need that levity, though, for that yeah, reason. Yeah, you need that levity for that reason. But at the same time, it's got such a great cast who handle the drama with, with intensity, but with this dignified intensity. Chua Chow Ejiofor is amazing. More screen, yeah. time, please. More screen time for him, please. I'm yeah. so happy to see him. And he's just like... I was excited that he was in the film in the first place, but then you watch him in the screen. He's, I want more of him. I want more. He, like, at this point, he's he is definitely one of the best actors alive mm. at the moment oh, yeah. cuz he like he's been he's always kind of a highlight in everything he, he I like serenity like uh, as the agent he is oh, a so fantastic and chilling antagonist and in 12 years a slave like he completely sells you on the pain and suffering of that existence she's just so good in everything children of men yeah in fact children of between children of men and this and um uh love actually serenity (laughs) um the, the he communicates being so dedicated to an ideal Hmm. That you will not only die for it, but you, you will kill, steamroll a planets, trade children, and do unspeakable things for what you think you believe in. Hmm. Speaking of cars, so, that car crash sequence in Doctor Strange, it's so intense and visceral. Hmm. It's an hmm. amazing sequence. Derrickson wanted to direct one of the uh, greatest car crashes of all time. That's what he set out to do. He said his sight's extremely high, and uh, it's definitely one of the ones that makes me go, oh, God, no! It's, it's mem- but the trouble is, I do look at that and go, and he didn't die how exactly, because, mm. wow, it's, it's that violent. It does capture yeah. the violence. It's reaction. Horror movie crash. levels are frightening, yeah. yeah but yeah. It's, it's, it's a rational fear, considering the number of auto deaths. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can be afraid of ghosts, but I actually have a genuine fear of being on the road, being surrounded by extremely fast-moving, untrustworthy humans. I have been in a car crash, I can tell you. It is no fun, and it was only a minor car crash, and that was no fun. Ditto. Although although nobody was hurt, ours wasn't exactly minor. We got pushed. Oh, yeah. We got trashed down the road on the front of a lorry on the M25. We're just we're, we're going at like 60, 70 miles an hour on the freeway, and then this um, juggernaut pulls up behind uh, us and uh, just clips us 
on the on the back left side, and suddenly our car spins sideways, slams into that Optimus Prime grill at the front, and that's like in my face. The windows like smashed inwards in slow motion. I'm going, <gasps> and just the the roar as our car goes sideways for 300 yards, and this truck slowly goes to a stop, and then we're like, oh, we're gonna die, we're gonna die, we're gonna die, we're gonna die, we're gonna die. Alex, that is not die. an irrational fear. This is a rational fear. That's what I mean. It's considering the statistics. It is rational to be afraid of guns. It is rational to be afraid of cars. But they can be hugely entertaining, both. In the right yeah. circumstances. As long as you're not on the wrong end of them. Yeah. But Enough yeah. guns and Fast and Furious movies, basically. But, that, but I do love that car crash sequence that sets it up so well. Uh, I think they could have spent a little bit more time fleshing out Steven's despair. Yeah, that this I could have done a, a little bit more. Uh, but the one thing I we haven't talked, I, I am going to I'm going to drag us here because I want to talk about the fact they filmed in Kathmandu. Kathmandu. That, There's no place at all like Kathmandu, said uh, Scott Derrickson. It's a bit like India. It's a little bit like uh, Thailand, but, but it's a, it's a wonderful place. But visually in this film, it is stunningly beautiful. Yeah. There's a, even even with this lighting scheme, there's a there's a, a vibrant texture and a also like layers of history all over it, and it's mm. something that I don't think that I can't think of it. They've done in another Marvel film at all. They have this place that it does feel very spiritual, and you can just see the history, it's sort of in the grain of the wood of the prayer wheels and everything. Yeah. Well, th- this is kind of the first time where um, the the fantastical has kind of been grounded in um, kind of the cultural history of humanity rather than with four. It's like an alien godlike race elsewhere in the universe with guardians, again, kind of cosmic uh, you know goings on whereas with dr strange it is very much drawing from you know celtic mythology asian mythology all of that stuff so it benefits from having that very grounded history and culture mm, uh, very significantly as well i think the fact that it's a culture which is to some extent still living um whereas thor i mean you a as you say they've extrapolated it to the point where it's this it's become this alien thing rather than something that feels um like one of our neighbors and in fact our ancestors worshipped and and um and were culturally significant too um but also it's there are a handful of people for whom norse mythology and <clears throat> norse norse gods are still very relevant but it's a tiny tiny group of people mm. whereas the the um the whole sense of spirituality that that sort of infuses what they try to create with this um with um camotage and, and where it's based and as you say everything that surrounds it all the the set design and everything it feels like something which is not only uh, very much of this earth but very much still alive still breathing can we talk about race and the accusations of whitewashing? Yes, I think we, we can't talk about Strange without it. Mm. Um, they, they came under fire when they decided to make the Ancient One uh, a white woman, and they uh, came under accusations of whitewashing. Derrickson's very serious about this on the commentary. He makes no bones about the fact that he's aware of, of this. Uh, he, they, they looked hard at what, they, what their options were. Uh, their options included uh, getting... well. I think we worked out, uh, if you go to Google, there are about seven Tibetan actors 
So that doesn't give you that much to uh, uh, select from uh, as a pool. Uh, and even if you do, you still run the risk of delivering a stereotype. The difficulty here is is what they came under uh, pressure with the Mandarin. Um, like, how do you deliver the classic version of this character without it just coming off as crass and from an ancient type of filmmaking and entertainment which now has no relevance and mm. is going to feel creaky and odd. Uh, they could have gone for an Asian woman, but there is, uh, especially within Asian culture, the, the idea of an extremely powerful woman who is holding secrets and is somewhat duplicitous is known as a dragon woman, and that's another type of character altogether. She It turns up, in fact, in... Um, uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. That's the Hidden Dragon. Um, and uh, it's it, ultimately, they could have gotten Michelle Yeoh. And I kind of still wish they had because Michelle Yeoh is wonderful. But Tilda Swinton is also wonderful. And um, deciding to make it not an old Tibetan man um, does lend a, a certain freshness to how she's performing it. It also gives a different aspect to the ancient one, almost like she's Celtic and she's ancient, but that she's sort of appropriated this culture in to some degree. Like she's become the premier specialist in this level of, uh, of, of ancient Asian mystical lore. And the idea is that, for me at least, it felt like this transcends where you come from. It's, you know, the idea of Strange and, and uh, um, uh, Wong and uh, Caecilius and um, Mordo and the Ancient One, all from very different backgrounds and places that they came from, mm. all with different approaches to it as well. It it doesn't then feel like it has to be an it must be an ancient chinese secret huh mm. being taught to you by an ancient chinese man and then like because invariably the person being taught is going to be a lot more like a young white man anyway mm. it, but unlike iron fist where they looked at what they could do and whether they could change it in doctor strange they deliver you something fantastic in iron fist by all accounts, we haven't watched a second of it. I watched the first the episode. <laughs> Everybody hates it, apart from the few people who are going to tweet at me and go, I quite like Iron Fist. That's fine. But everybody else hates it. So uh, speak, speaking on the, the, the race issues of the film, um, yeah. I, I'm, a, I'm a great subscriber to uh, uh, Lindsay Ellis's kind of philosophy on, on, on these kind of things. Um, uh, Lindsay Ellis, by the way, is a, a fantastic film critic on YouTube. Um, go subscribe to it if you, if you uh, haven't seen her stuff. But she just says, look, it can be both. Like, it can be like a fantastic performance by Tilda Swinton, and she does a great job, and it's a fantastic character. And the business side of her, a white woman being cast in a traditionally Asian role, is a little bit sketchy. Um, and that's okay as long as you acknowledge it and and you know try to do better next time. Um, I I 
I think because we um, on Cane and Rinse, we kind of stumbled on a, a similar-ish situation uh, mm-hmm. with uh, Uncharted Four. So that if anyone who doesn't know, so there's a, a character in uh, Uncharted Four called Nadine Ross, played by Laura Bailey, who's a white actress. The character is South uh, South African, and mm-hmm. in the kind of filming scripting stage, her race was ambiguous. Uh, they didn't know what what she was going to look like. And at a certain point, they decided that Nadine Ross was going to be black. Mm-hmm. Then the controversy came of, well, you've got a white actress playing a black character yeah, in this yeah. video game. Now, in the actual text of the game, Nadine Ross is a great character. Like, there's, it's not racist in any way. Uh, she's a fantastic black character. You just have to reckon with the fact that she's a black character played by a white actress. And that's kind of, it's kind of not okay because of the amount of roles that aren't written for black actresses. There are yeah. so many more roles written for white actresses than there are, um, you know, black roles. And part, you know, you mentioned the six Tibetan actors. Part of the reason why is because there are so few, few roles written for roles Tibetan actors. Yeah. yeah. And the, the thing Same is, as with Native Americans. You, you yeah. Get sh- like shitty roles for Native Americans, and they're, they're often stereotyped. And there are some great Native American actors out there, but they never get any work because the only roles they can get are shitty. Yeah, exactly. And so, like, this all exists on a spectrum, and I think people need to think more in a spectrum of, like, look, acknowledge this is problematic, but this isn't a shouty problem. This is a talky problem. Um, we need to talk about it and acknowledge that it's an issue. But at the same time, I think Tilda Swin- it's it would be wrong also to not acknowledge that Tilda Swinton does a fantastic job. Mm, bingo. I tend to go, uh, so- I'm pretty much the, the approach of, it's like when they cast Lawrence Fishburne as Perry White. I was fine with it because it's like, it's Lawrence Fishburne. It's a fantastic actor. I'm fine with that. Yeah. I think, I again, to... if you acknowledge the fact that, you know, yes, there's certain issues, it's down to the actor they cast. If the actor is going to be do the role in an interesting way, I'm I'm fine with that. Neil, Baron, Baron Mordo was not black originally. No, he's not. So and it's too much for just being they, awesome. And they readjusted Wong to make sure he was less of a manservant stereotype. They They corrected uh, so, uh, a lot of real weaknesses of the original comic. Um, I think it's it's must, much less of an issue, though, where you've got um, characters that were originally created white and yes. you're adding yeah. some diversity to that by casting non-white actors. Basically, that's something that we need more of anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there's a to compensate. There's a uh, fantastic um, uh, article that examines why it's okay to make white characters black and not okay to make black characters white. They basically say it's like having two bowls of chocolate raisins. Yeah, I've seen this. One one is overflowing and the other one has a couple in there it makes a difference when you take some from the other and it doesn't make a difference when you take yeah. uh, one from the, the other one. Um, now so, imagine that the overflowing bowl is overflowing with white chocolate yogurt raisins. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it's just acknowledging that there's an imbalance and that's what makes it yeah. okay. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Romamu, I've come to bargain. You've come to die. Your world is now my world. 
The best way I can sum up why villains, including Caecilius and Dormammu, come off as not being very complex is that while their motives might seem to come from a place that is vast and scary and overwhelming, they aren't much for talking. You can listen to a true believer monologuing about how they see the world, but far more interesting to me are moments where they actually engage the hero in conversation, where they challenge him or her and in turn are challenged. And not just in a superficial way where they go, you and I are not so different. We are two sides of the same coin. Or just announcing how they feel about the world in a way that opposes the hero's worldview and then just kind of leaving it at that, which is what Caecilius does. That was fine in the 80s. It was a step forward from just the sneering villain. But we are now many decades down, or indeed, as I'd like to think of it, many decades up. We're on top of all of those stories. So you make it more complex. You go deeper. You build. You have the hero challenged by the villain and the villain challenged by the hero. That, to me, is fascinating. That's why Ledger's Joker is excellent. He's far more interested in engaging Batman on a cerebral level than simply destroying him. But it's the being challenged part that's even more important. If an antagonist's views can actually change, that puts them on an arc. That's when they begin to be really interesting to me, especially if you stay with them rather than just setting them free. And these are all comic book movies with the idea is that you're supposed to, rather than just defeating the villain at the end and then they go away like the old 90s Batman films, you keep them around. It's an ongoing continuity. It's not an open and shut case. They don't have to stop being villains. But wouldn't it be much more interesting if they were on arcs themselves? And for readers and listeners of the New Century Multiverse, that's what I've applied to my antagonists there. My issues with the film, lighting scheme and slightly too dour tone aside, simply come down to being super familiar with the hero's journey, specifically in the mind-expanding sense of it. Uh, the Matrix caused me to write a whole unpublished book along those lines, and that was nowhere near as good as Doctor Strange turned out to be, but the first 90 minutes felt like it was going through the motions, albeit tripping balls along the way. And actually, you mentioned in Kung Fu Panda as well, Sharon, that really kind of made me go, Ah, because that's another really clear master teach me um, hero's journey. But the ending redeemed that sense of slight weariness with these repeated movements. Dormammu, I've come to bargain. You've come to die. Your world is now mine. What is this? No, this is real. <sighs> Deliberately addressing and challenging the city-destroying finale of far too many superhero blockbusters, this Doctor seeks only, not just the superhero blockbusters, all the Transformers movies do it too, and everything that's aping Transformers. I mean, Fast and Furious 7 even destroyed several city blocks in a car park. Vin Diesel destroyed a car park just by stamping on it. Um, <laughs> deliberately addressing and challenging the City Destroyer finale of too many blockbusters in general, this Doctor seeks only to undo the hurt done to these people. It's not about kicking ass at all. There's like They fight with the Caecilius and his um, cronies, but it's not about fighting. It's not about, like, you know, we'll watch these guys engaging in wizard combat. They're not Jedi in that regard. 
Dormammu, I've come to bargain. What is happening? This is time. Endless, looped time. And then, the confrontation with Dormammu was one of the best resolutions to films about magic or superheroes that I've seen. I mean, we've seen heroes be cunning, and we've seen heroes be selfless. But the fact that this particular gambit fully incorporates the antithesis of Stephen's weakness... And it's not just a gambit, it's a gambit that he's prepared to keep going with if it doesn't pay off. That gives it power. It makes it a wonderfully personal redemption. See, Strange has spent his life arrogant and vapid and weak, and yet still opting for a role where he is saving lives every day. You cannot do this forever. Actually, I can. This is how things are now. You and me, trapped in this moment, endlessly. Then you will spend eternity dying. Yes, but everyone on Earth will live. But you will suffer. Pain's an old friend. He has processed this into a self-aggrandizing ladder of achievement, fixing an inoperable bullet wound, and then immediately afterwards, in a way that's not given proper focus, declining to help someone whom he deems impossible to save. Now, this is when we were watching it last time. It was like, you know that bit when he pulls the bullet out of the brain? Yeah. And he's like, yep, that's me, I'm the super doctor. If they'd immediately afterwards had a scene where Strange was um, rushed into another room and told, operate on this person, and he'd looked at the sheets and gone, no, can't do it, why not? Look at this, da-da-da-da-da, and then reel off a bunch of surgical jargon. It's impossible. You know, if anyone can do it, you can. And then he set, drops the bomb, I'm not going to tarnish my reputation if this doesn't work, which it won't. I don't have faith in my abilities to fail at this point. That would very clearly outline, he's doing a bad thing and we want him to realise this is a weakness in himself. That It's, it's Woody being selfish at the beginning of Toy Story. It's uh, Tony in, uh, in Iron Man. His weaknesses are more clearly outlined. Tony Stark's key weakness in the original Iron Man is lack of accountability, and becoming Iron Man makes him accountable. In Doctor Strange, Stephen doesn't want to lose the life he's built up, and he won't do that, he won't risk that for somebody else if he doesn't believe he can win. So this hypothetical situation I'm talking about where he declines to operate on a patient... They do it, but it's in the car, he's on the phone, and then the car crash happens immediately afterwards, and you're thrown by it so hard, you don't get time to really absorb the fact that he let a person possibly die because he didn't want it to tarnish his reputation. And then later on, when he's talking to that guy on the phone, fix my hands, this doctor says, I can't, uh, I can't do it, I have a reputation to protect. In other words, if I try to fix your hands and I can't, people are going to look at that as a strike against my abilities to 100% this doctor thing. That's Strange's weakness. It wasn't made enough of, but it's there. The Ancient One sees this fear of failure as stemming from arrogance, telling him it's not about you in that wonderful scene with the snow. Dormammu! I've come to bargain! Dormammu! 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 
Stephen's mechanism for relating to people for whatever reason never developed, leaving him solitary and isolated. This decision that he ultimately makes to be killed over and over again by Dormammu is a thankless self-sacrifice and an acceptance of the worst suffering on behalf of people he will never know. He's not going to get recognition for this. He's not going to be thanked for it. There's no reward. There's no reputation. Ultimately, it is him putting himself aside at this stage. Specifically, this suffering is based on his failure, and thus he faces death and ruin forever by his own making, having weighed up everybody else and judging himself insignificant, which is the polar opposite of Caecilius. Caecilius in a Lovecraftian fashion, went mad at the prospect of this massive, massive universe that he was shown by what he had learned. And Dormammu gave kind of a form to that and the idea that that could be collapsed to try and get order from chaos. And to do that, he sidelined everybody in existence just so that he could, you know, he even kidded himself that it would be best for everyone. You could defeat death. That was, I think, what probably made you feel like this was a really interesting character. Ultimately, he's much like any other religious zealot babbling on about his mission. Somebody who so strongly believes in something that is deeply morally flawed, if you look at the needs of the many versus the needs of the few. There's not many superheroes that end without a punching contest of some kind. And while the best have the hero challenged to face their fears or adjust their worldview, one of my favorites being Thor, where he uh, confronts Loki. And it's a very small-scale version of this. To save this small Mexican town of people that he knows on a very passing level, but he has now realized that he's been this selfish little prick his entire life, which has been a long life, by the way. He's thousands of years old. And he finally does makes an incredibly selfless act. Brother, whatever I have done to wrong you, Whatever I have done to lead you to do this, I am truly sorry. But these people are innocent. Taking their lives will gain you nothing. So take mine and end this. This is a, an expansion of that, a, a much more showy, less personal, because obviously Strange doesn't know Dormammu, which is ironic since Benedict Cumberbatch plays Dormammu. So one of my favorites being Thor, few superhero movies do so in the showdown. That makes this one a very noteworthy addition to the cinematic mythos. Few end without a punching contest, 
with the hero being challenged to adjust their worldview in the showdown. Usually it's around the showdown, slightly before the showdown. Even Thor does get his powers back and then has a punching contest with Loki. Honestly, a lot of the time it's because, and we talked about this with Bob, pre-visualised action sequences. And that big climatic showdown happens at the end of a big previous action sequence, and unless it's very strongly written, it's not going to be about the hero really confronting their weaknesses. Winter Soldier being an excellent exception as well, the uh, I'm with you to the end of the line. In effect, rather than the hero confronting his own weakness, the hero confronts the villain with his own redeeming strength. That's what makes Winter Soldier a better film than Doctor Strange for me, by far, but I still love this ending. You will never win. No, but I could lose again and again and again and again forever. That makes you my prisoner. Stop! Make this stop! Set me free! No. I've come to bargain. What do you want? Take your zealots from the earth. End your assault on my world. Never come back. Do it, and I'll break the loop. Now, that's it. That's it for me on uh, on this end bit. You guys want to talk as much as you like about the the Hong Kong scene and Dormammu. I've come to bargain. <laughs> I think um, another part of it that I really appreciate is um, you spend all this time setting up um, someone like Dormammu, or if you know any other movie where you have a character who is set up to be all powerful godlike could destroy the world on a whim and then it just comes down to fisticuffs where the superhero just punches them back to their reality and it just undermines all of that kind of um foreshadowing and and build up for that character mm. whereas Again, it's like cthulhu you can't punch cthulhu and if you are you're doing it wrong yeah and with this situation they found a solution that both empowered Doctor Strange and made him, you know, accentuated like the, you know, the positive qualities of his character and made, you know, made him grow as a character and, and made him feel clever to the audience, but without sacrificing the power of Dormammu. Dormammu still feels imposing and threatening. He's just trapped by a trick, by a clever trick. He can still kill and they demonstrate this kill doctor strange 10,000 times over and they're very clever in that they don't really indicate how much time has actually passed between doctor strange and dormammu for all we know this could have repeated in infimum for years and we're just getting kind of the short version and dormammu just suddenly goes Oh my God! I cannot deal with this anymore. You can have Earth. I, I, it's not worth this price. And it's, it's so elegant and clever. It's, 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 it's a, it's a great execution of a conflict between a hero and his villain. Yeah. 
Dormammu may not be, uh, we may not see much of the complexity of Dormammu. I kind of want to see him come back so that we can see some complexity because he's a major strange heavy. Yeah. You know, he, uh, he's a cosmic power. Um, but uh, ultimately, I think they might just be keeping him. Like, if Fox don't give him Galactus, it's like, just, we'll break out this purple face guy instead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Eater of Worlds. Yeah, they do refer to him as the uh, mm. Eater of Worlds at one point. Yeah. Well, again, Galactus is Space Cthulhu. He's uh, he's uh, who Steve uh, Jack Kirby reckoned his new Age of Tech and and uh, and Space Age version of Cthulhu would be. Big purple hat. It's the tits. <laughs> I was waiting for that. I say you all for it earlier, and you didn't go for it. <laughs> I do like the fact that uh, that Mordo foreshadows this. Um, this ending as well when he's cautioning him about messing about with the eye of agamotto mm. you could end up stuck in a loop of time mm. over and over and over again yeah and he does he outlines it for the audience so that they understand what they that you know and also i love the bit with the apple because that makes it clear to even little kids exactly what's happening mm. marvel are extremely good at even even their like darker sort of um, superhero, uh, uh, you know, on the edge movies like Civil War have their moments that are delightful to children. You know, there's, there's pretty much every movie has something that Lego can make. <laughs> I have Doctor Strange's Sanctum Sanctorum, which has a Cthulhu coming through it. Does it have an apple as well? No. Oh. Although I could... Uh, I was going to say, you can yeah. put an apple in there. We have one somewhere. Yeah. An apple a day keeps the Cthulhu away. And indeed, the Doctor Strange away. Mm. Um, I, I also, I, I really like the way Benedict Wong. By the way, could that have been more confusing, Benedict? Yes. yes. Wong. Yes. yes. No, the character of Wong. Yes. <laughs> he speaks like this as well. <laughs> I mean, how many films have two Benedicts in them? <laughs> Doctor Strange, <laughs> apparently. That's the, mm. yeah. Uh, but I, I really uh, like the fact that Wong. Uh, I was saying to Lyra that there really aren't that many um, uh, Asian-American movie stars who aren't martial artists. Like, you can be an Asian-American or, or popular in America if you're Asian, but you've also mostly, like, you, like to have your name recognised, you have to be able to be good at flying kicks. Um, Benedict Wong's British. I know. Okay. I'm well aware of that. Okay. But the point is that uh, Benedict, uh, the point I was getting around to is that Wong can do martial arts, but first and foremost, he's a librarian. Mm. He's not your manservant. He's not going to carry your bags. Also, yes, another example of don't mess with librarians because they're harder than you think they are. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Somebody's got to beat those books into submission. Yeah. I think from the sounds of it, Wong Oops. was actually like the guardian of one of the um, uh, sanctums, wasn't he? The, the, the Hong Kong one. Is that, is that his? What is your name, Mr. Doctor? Mr. Doctor. It's strange. Perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> that, I mean, Matt Mickelson's actually really dryly funny, and he was really excited to do this because he was like, do I get to do a martial arts movie? And uh, Derrickson was like, well, yeah, this is, there's lots of martial arts. He was like, oh, splendid. Like, I, I think like behind closed doors, Mads Mikkelsen is a really cool, fun guy. He just always plays creepy, quiet men. From everything isn't, I've seen, he is. He is meant yeah. to be quite funny. Isn't that yeah. isn't that always the way though? Like yeah. I feel like every time someone, uh, an actor, gets a reputation for playing characters that are horrible, secretly mm. they're the nicest guy in the universe. Yeah, like, Jason yeah. Isaacs, hilarious. I think yeah. Ralph Fiennes is really quite nice as well. Mm. Oh, and I really love the uh, line that uh, the Ancient One gives to Mordo: "We never defeat our demons; we just learn to live above them." 
Okay, this is another one of those situations where I can't spoil the movie because if I say what movie that's from, it spoils the movie. But uh, Josh, you know the one I'm thinking of. Yeah, I I know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and we haven't mentioned um, uh, Rachel McAdams yet. She's great. She's from what there. we see of her, she's there. She she is infinite amount of weight on the head of a pin because on this poor woman mm-hmm. is the entire burden of she has to characterize Stephen. making and Stephen she has to make him likable in some way care aboutable yeah yeah and that's tough because benedict is not making it easier for mm. her and they they have that that is actually one of you my, care so much this is one of my significant criticisms um of the the film because they have basically stripped her role Mm -hmm. um, which needed to be far more substantial Mm -hmm. down to next to nothing yeah especially given the fact that claire temple in the in the comics is night nurse who if you don't know who that is it's basically who rosario dawson's playing in the netflix marvel stuff oh serious yeah okay it's so she's uh, the one. Is that, Night Nurse that, just the one who tends to superhero injuries. Yes, she's. There's been various, but she. I think she's like the first. She's been the main one. Nice. I mean, I get why because they were really at risk of making her pepper. Yeah, they yeah. peppered her up. Um, so I, I do understand, but ultimately they still used her for all of the things that that feel a little bit cheap and a little bit shorthandy hmm. for what they were trying to get across and by not giving her more screen time to beef that up a bit it, it does feel a little like you're using her for this but you haven't earned that hmm. yeah um and, and thankfully they didn't kill her just to make strange feel bad oh god no that would have been horrendous but th- there's two things specifically one that i think is really good and one that really annoys me even though i quite like the scene hmm. um and that's the when they have the fight and um basically she leaves way too quickly hmm. that needed to go on for a lot longer because there's their relationship is obviously way more important than he gives credence to. And the fact that he says we weren't friend, we were never friends, we were barely lovers is is ridiculously dismissive. If you then consider the fact that you look at that watch she gave him, mm-hmm. you look at the inscription on the back of that watch, mm-hmm. you look at the fact that despite the fact he had nothing left, he did not sell that watch and he keeps it even after it's broken Mm -hmm. and he puts it on the table next to him when he goes to write to her now all of those visual um, cues show you how important that relationship was but it doesn't come until too late Mm. so those are the things I don't like even though I really like the scenes the thing I really do like is actually to do with her as a character and it's when she's um, dealing with him uh, when they go into the whole astral fight um, and it's it's to do with her. There's a moment where she is looking at everything around her and it's like, OK, the world has gone crazy town at this point. And she just closes her eyes and takes a breath. And you can just see her thinking, right, OK, lots of shit has just entered my field of experience, which I am going to have to process later. But right now, somebody is dying. I need to focus on that. And I really like the way that personified who she is and i i wanted to get to know that person more and mm. you've got barely a chance to do so 
I could have taken uh, Doctor Strange with slightly more of a uh, uh, a measured pace, longer scenes, fewer scenes, slightly less training. Apparently, the test audiences love the training. They wanted to see more of it put in there. It's effectively redundant. We've seen training montages before. This is the growth bed for your characters that are going to carry on throughout the Doctor Strange series. I mean, obviously... You need to also establish what the magic is. I love the idea that the magic is drawing energy from another dimension so that it's not just it's coming out of nowhere. Well, where's the energy transfer? That's fantastic. But the idea of shortchanging deeper characterization for that is one of the reasons why this is a lot lower on the scale for me on the uh, the Marvel movies. Now, that doesn't mean much in the grand scheme of things because most Marvel movies are above most movies for me. But... That's mainly down to how invested in the world I am. One thing that I think is quite significant that we don't get to see with Steven, that we do get to see with a lot of other Marvel heroes, is them as a child. Tony, we get constant references back to his father, and we can sort of sculpt an image of what the boy was like, the boy version of Tony. At the opening of Iron Man, we begin with Tony's life told in magazines. John Favreau's very careful to sculpt the character before he delivers him. Steve, we get an idea of what young Steve was like through his relationship with Bucky, and that relationship continues. Thor, we get to see young Thor and young Loki. And that relationship continues. Star-Lord, we get to see as a boy. We get to see that he hates the fact that some kids were picking on a little green frog. He doesn't like bullies. We get his relationship with his mother. His relationship to music because of his mother. His mother's music that he carries with him. Peter Quill is a 34-year-old boy. Ant-Man, because of his relationship with his uh, ex-wife and his daughter... And him talking about his Robin Hood behavior when he was uh, younger, we get an idea of what Scott Lang was like. Strange, we meet him when he's a successful man. We are told repeatedly he is a successful man. Then he is injured. That doesn't tell us much about Stephen, not really. There's far too much pressure on the relationship with Christine, and almost immediately he pushes her away and rushes off to Camotage. We don't know enough about Steven. They just give us the shorthand. He's arrogant. Ultimately, this film for me was an introduction to Doctor Strange and just a sort of a, we've cast the right guy. He's the guy who's going to be moving forwards playing this guy in roughly this way. Here is his internal struggle. Let's watch him deal with that. And this is roughly what his world looks like. And to that end, it succeeded. But it feels a bit like a two-hour trailer. No, that's that's selling it short. It 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 could have been amazing for me. Visually speaking, at times it is amazing. Spiritually speaking, it pretty much just goes, hey, remember The Matrix? What if Christopher Nolan had directed that? It gets something like this. And let's not really look into the spirituality of it or the philosophy of it. But it could have been amazing on an emotional level for me. And it never really hits that, aside from shades here and there. I think it's probably got more elements in it that are really fantastic than some of the other lesser Marvels for me. But the general, like, again, this lighting scheme, just thinking about it and how dour and, and sad the whole film is, it's, it's lacking that punch. And it just, considering I just suggested it should be a measured pace, it's quite slow as well. <laughs> yeah. So I think maybe just... Uh, I think it needed to be richer. 
basically what I'm saying is a Guillermo del Toro Doctor Strange would be great. Please, can we have that? Particularly, <laughs> yeah. That would have been awesome. Screw that. I still want my Justice League dark from him. I think what they need to do, like, I mean, uh, Guillermo del Toro is a good, uh, good shout, but just an interesting director with a very clear aesthetic is yeah. i think really essential for the sequel um i don't i really don't want the the same creative team working on this um i think i thank them for introducing doctor strange but um i think we need some new blood uh, coming in here and and kind of adding their own visual flair to doctor strange and and really giving this uh sub franchise its own identity in the way that winter mm. soldier gave captain america like you know breathed life into that uh sub mm. franchise of the marvel universe um and yeah. because it is effectively retelling iron man again i mean Monas yeah, trailers yeah, made yeah. no bones about this themselves yeah and um yeah, and and the thing is, you've got you've laid the foundation. Benedict Cumberbatch is a good actor, and I'm sure with time, like better than good. Yeah, he's a great actor, and I'm Amazing. sure and sure with I'm sure with time and some practice, like in the sequel, like the accent's going to be just less of a problem. Like he'll have learned how to cope with it and be able to bring his A game. Um, yeah, I, I'm excited, and I hope they get creative and Mordo. I think is a great concept for a villain. I'm uh, also really looking forward to just just cameos from Strange here yeah. and there as as a guy you go to when you've got crazy stuff that Shield can't well that anybody tech related can't help you with. To be fair, they pulled that off straight <coughs> away in the post credit sequence with Thor. Mm-hmm. That is wonderful. Yes, I really enjoyed yeah, that. I do. That sequence was shot by Taika Waititi, and uh, it's it's got that flavour already. Although he's also wearing crazy marigold gloves as well, which I'm I'm certain he'll be wearing in the film. That's accurate to the comic, yep. but not necessarily. It doesn't necessarily make the outfit better. To be fair, fact, I didn't clash mis- with pretty much I, everything. I didn't miss them during the films. So I'm okay if they don't come back. But I did that just that little cameo of those two together. Thor, Doctor Strange, mm. and he was perfectly wonderful. I think what I found interesting about this this rewatch is when I when we saw this at the cinema, I walked out feeling like this could rival Winter Soldier for me. You did. You were saying that favorite. might be my favorite. Yeah, um, and. Having now seen it again, I don't think that's the case anymore. Um, I, I still love it, and I think it's because the things that hit for me, mm. a lot of them are very, very personal. Yeah. A lot of it is to do with, um, with Stephen's personal demons and flaws, and how... Which Stephen? <laughs> you got a couple of, you have a brace of Steve's have, right now. Uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I have Steve's in my head. Um, yeah, the okay, strange. Um, it, it, it's really difficult to put into words. That's the the hard part. But it it felt so personal and it hit on such a um, a basic level. And then watching it again after the fact, those things are still there. But I can be a little bit more detached from them now. Mm. And partly because watching the movie and highlighting them and bringing them all to the surface has enabled me to start working on them, which means that they're now fading a little bit. 
and that's a good thing. But it does mean that now when I rewatch the film, I'm, I see the joints a little bit more, and the elements are still there, but it doesn't quite have the sum of the parts feel to it that Winter Soldier does. Hmm. Right. Any more on Doctor Strange? Well, I don't think it's up there high in the list of best Marvel movies in my rewatch. My, I have like my list that is my favorites and the stories and everything, but I have my rewatch list, which is completely different, which is always headlined by Guardians of the Galaxy. Guardians, yeah. It's then followed by Ant-Man, and then it's followed by Doctor Strange, because I got a freaking Doctor Strange movie, and I'm so happy. I'm so happy. <laughs> I'm happy I got... I mean, you, you know... Technically, you got a Doctor Strange movie in 1978. Will the forces of evil conquer the forces of good on Earth? Doctor Strange, a special two-hour presentation. I got a good Doctor Strange movie. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got a great... Again, added to the world-building great cast. They've got the foundation there. I'm happy to... I'm personally happy to see the same team tackle it and with confidence now because they've set the groundwork and they can grow from there. That's always a good thing. I don't think we're going to... I really don't think... I think Thor the Dark World, have perennial punching bag, is probably going to stay the perennial punching bag, because I, I genuinely don't think... That was poor. It was really they poor. lost their way for that one, though. They yeah. really did lose that They lost their way in, in that one more than Iron Man 2, and controversially, 3. Yeah. Because I'm not a fan of 3, either. Elements of it, but not as a whole, unfortunately. Hmm. I think I, I've, I've warmed a little more to Iron Man 3. Uh, in terms of rewatchability, the constant Shane Black humour of Iron Man 3 makes it yes. much more rewatchable than The Dark World for me. So yeah, their, um, um, Also, their humour is actually but, genuinely funny and enjoyable in Iron Man 3. Yeah. But also, that uh, Iron Man 3's humour makes it more rewatchable for me than Doctor Strange. So... Uh, I mean, we shall see over time whether Doctor Strange uh, go, goes up or, mm. or down in my estimation. But uh, at the moment, Scott Derrickson is not f- confirmed as director of Doctor Strange 2, which, by the way, hasn't even really been announced yet. Um, but they haven't and... announced anything much past, for, uh, past the second Avengers film, have they? No. Uh, but he has been announced as director of the Lock and Key TV series. This is their third attempt to bring Lock and Key to the screen, big or small. And that's a really good call. From the sounds of it, he's fascinated with the idea of fears and uh, fantasy. And obviously he can handle Lovecrafty and stuff. Uh, so I'm actually fairly happy that uh, you know him working on that for TV, that's a good fit. I like that. Let's see how that one goes. So that's uh, uh, a good example of uh, if you uh, if there's a director you don't particularly like but you do kind of like one of their films, listen to them doing a commentary and just really get more of a feel for who they are because you, it can be quite revealing um, getting to know the person uh, themselves. And I'm I'm far too dismissive. Y- you of, uh, still cannot pay me enough money to watch a Transformers director's commentary. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> Uh, that is it for us talking about Doctor Strange. And next week we are covering Transmetropolitan. Uh, I think I said last week, get hold of Lust for Life. Uh, they've changed the running order on the books. So uh, what you want to get hold of is Back on the Street, which has now been bumped up with several issues from Lust for Life, and then Lust for Life. So get book one. If you like that, get book two. That's usually a good uh, way of doing things. Yeah, well, no, because I, I only remarked on it last week as don't get book one. It's only got three issues and it's very expensive for those three issues. They subsequently changed that uh, since I bought my three issue uh, original version. So uh, this is, it's a slight amendment of that original so, point that I made. So if we're recommending comic books, might I ask if I could do one? 
Very different. Yeah. So uh, there's a comic book I'd like to recommend by Stephen Sajak, who Alex is familiar with. You may have seen his artwork around the place. He's currently, I believe, the artist on Aquaman Rebirth. He's absolutely fantastic. He did a book called Sunstone. Now, I know you guys had some fun with the Fifty Shades of Grey stuff. Mm -hmm. If you want to read about a love story that involves BDSM, Sunstone is one to go with. I have picked up a copy of Volume 1 and absolutely loved it because it's about people and nice people at that and really relatable and thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. I will say this is not one for kids. It does contain nudity and and BDSM. So um, don't worry, it doesn't go in. There's, <laughs> how do I put this? You don't see the sex. There's a lot about the build-up and stuff to it, but it's about it's about two two people falling in love. It looks beautiful. It's absolutely stunning. I also have the book that his wife does as well called Bloodstained. Again, that's absolutely wonderful. No, no, no sex in that, but it's just a really good comedy book that I've very much enjoyed. So, the, and the, both of their art is absolutely fantastic. But yeah, Sunstone is one I'd, I'd highly recommend. Sunstone to Comicsology with you. Okay. Oh, yeah. Also, Stephen Sedgwick also did the art for Rat Queens. Yeah, this guy really was instrumental in uh, the uh, the look for Princess Thieves. He was one of the uh, the touchstones for that. So, wow. Okay, fantastic. <clears throat> Josh, any recommendations? Because like people have got this giant list already, but uh, we could always <laughs> do with one more. Um. I haven't got any recommendations comic book wise, unfortunately. Okay. Uh, so, but uh, hey, uh, I do a video game podcast, and yeah, we yeah. just did a podcast on uh, Diablo Free, which is magic related, I suppose. So that's a tenuous connection. So go listen to that if you like Doctor Strange. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you had to follow up the the love story that involved BDSM. <laughs> that's okay. It's such a difficult one to follow, isn't it? Um, okay, so, uh, Neil, where can they find your stuff? You can find me over at Gameburst, and you can find me on YouTube as well as The the Kid Dog. Fantastic. Thank you guys so, so much for coming on this show, and uh, it was it's fantastic to have you back at the, uh, the Marvel team again. Very definitely, yes. Yeah. Okay, uh, that is all from us. Uh, we will be back next week with Transmetropolitan. Get reading now if you want to burn up on that. We will give, we'll make it so that you, we will explain to you about Transmet without you having to read it at all. And by the time we're finished, you will probably want to read it. So. Yeah, my trade list is getting huge. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to cost people too much, but it'll definitely be worth tracking down the first book. Uh, back on the street. Okay, that's all from us. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's yeah. Out. And we'll leave you with Michael Giacchino's amazing score, which is sure to maintain throughout Doctor Strange's on-screen appearances if Marvel have their heads on their shoulders. 